For the past few months, many have speculated if the Seahawks and Geno Smith didn't agree to a long-term deal before the deadline that the Seahawks would use the franchise tag. But have their plans changed? A lot of quarterback talk on a bonus episode of Locked on Seahawks coming your way. You are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s, and happy Sunday. This is your host, Corbin Smith, for the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. A special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. In this case, six days a week. Again, a bonus episode coming your way with so much action taking place at the NFL Scouting Combine yesterday. Quarterbacks and receivers to premium positions worked out at Lucas Oil Stadium and some really eye-popping numbers in both position groups. I'll be looking at the big winners and losers from yesterday's workouts at those two positions and whether or not what happened with the quarterback group might change the plans a little bit for the Seahawks heading towards the start of the new league year at the most important position in professional sports. Now for your lead story here on our bonus episode of Locked On Seahawks. For the last couple of months, the Seahawks have been in the midst of negotiations with Pro Bowl quarterback Geno Smith on a long-term deal. There is an important deadline that is coming up on Tuesday afternoon. Teams have until then to decide whether or not they are going to use their one franchise tag on a player. John Schneider historically has been against using the franchise tag, but this is a unique offseason with Geno Smith coming off a breakout season. Pro Bowler led the Seahawks to the playoffs, broke some single-season franchise records, including completion percentage and total passing yardage. He has earned a long-term deal, but with him only having one great season and he was a backup for seven years before then, There are some reservations there, and so both sides are toggling a little bit back and forth in negotiations, and the clock is ticking, quite frankly, because if the Seahawks decide not to use the franchise tag before Tuesday's deadline, Geno Smith would hit the market on March 15th without a contract and would be free to negotiate and sign with any team. For the last several weeks, that hasn't seemed like something that would be likely to happen, but there's a few reasons why I believe that there's a better chance that the Seahawks allow that to happen now than maybe a few days ago even, and it's because of what has happened at the Combine looking at this intriguing quarterback class. Now, again, what these guys do in Indianapolis wearing – tank tops and shorts, what they call the underwear Olympics. You don't want to put too much stock in that. you got to look at the film. But this is a class that has four quarterback prospects potentially going in the top 10, maybe even the top seven or eight picks. There's going to be a quick run of quarterbacks. It might be one, two, three for QBs to open the draft. We've seen it happen before. It could very easily happen again, especially with what Anthony Richardson and Will Levis, Anthony Richardson mostly yesterday, did at the Combine that has really turned everything on its head as far as their draft stock. And so there's a chance that we could see those two players, plus CJ Stroud and Bryce Young, all four of those quarterbacks could be off the board early. And the big issue for the Seahawks here, looking at their negotiations with Geno Smith, 
all signs point to them wanting to get this done. And this is from both sides. I think Geno Smith wants to stay in Seattle. I, I believe he was being genuine when he said he wanted to finish his career with the Seahawks. And I think that they would love to bring him back. They're willing to pay him really good money. But are they willing to go to that $40 million per year threshold? Probably not. And the issue with the franchise tag, the big reason why John Schneider in particular loves the tag and doesn't like to use it, he's used it two times in 13 years for a reason, the Seahawks structure their contracts typically on long-term deals with backloaded contracts that all the guaranteed money is up front in the first year or two. And that does not mesh well with a franchise tag, which is a one-year contract that is an extensive amount of money that is all going to be a direct cap hit. So in this case, Geno Smith, $32.4 million would be a non-exclusive franchise tag. It's a $32.4 million cap hit. And according to overthecap.com, the Seahawks right now have just $24.4 million in cap space, and that's not including the rookies for the 2023 draft class. So just to get back into the black for the start of the league year, the Seahawks would need to cut a few players. They would need to have some restructures or extensions thrown in potentially. They'd have to make some moves just to get back to even with the salary cap. And then you're talking about all the other moves that you're not going to be able to make if Geno Smith is playing on that contract. Now, the benefit of it, of course, if you do franchise tag him, it extends your window for another week and a half to try to hammer out a long-term deal that's going to have a much smaller cap hit for this next season. That's got to be the goal for the Seahawks. You want to keep him, but you also don't want to destroy your salary cap for this year. And so I don't view the franchise tag at this point as something that the Seahawks are going to be willing to slide with into next season if they're going to use it i think it's going to be under the premise that we are very close to having this long-term deal done we're giving ourselves another week and a half to finalize things and then we'll get this extension signed and then we're good to go but if they can't get that done or they don't feel positive about that then i think john schneider is going to do what he's done for 11 of the past 13 years and he's going to decide you know what i'm not using this franchise tag because he doesn't want to end up in a position where Geno Smith signs that and now you're on the hook for 32.4 million this next year against the cap. And so that's the big issue. If they feel like contract discussions are making positive progress, Pete Carroll seems to think so. John Schneider may be playing a little bit smokescreen game at the combine. It wasn't quite as optimistic on that front, at least based on his answer. They're going to be working on trying to finalize this here in the next 48 hours. But I do wonder if the way that these quarterbacks performed, in particular Anthony Richardson, we got to put these numbers up right now. What he did yesterday, that was the greatest performance that has ever been put on display at a scouting combine by a quarterback. He weighed in at 244 pounds, six foot four. He was first in both of those categories. So he's the biggest quarterback in this draft class that was at the combine. Ran a 4-4-3 40-yard dash. So we're talking like fast receiver and cornerback times by a 244-pound quarterback, 40-and-a-half-inch vertical, the highest vertical jump by a quarterback in combine history, and a 10-foot-9-inch broad jump. He was first in all these categories. He didn't do the short shuttle or the three-cone, but he didn't need to. You could see the arm strength on display with him at the combine yesterday during the passing drills. Now, there were some issues that you could still see with the footwork. He is a project, but... Seeing a talent like that in the way that C.J. Stroud was slinging the ball all over the place yesterday. Will Levis, you can see the arm strength. There's some question marks there, too, but he's got great athleticism. The few drills he did yesterday was really good. 
So there's a lot of talent in this quarterback class. And you got to wonder at this point, is John Schneider wondering, you know, maybe it is going to benefit us to go with a young quarterback here rather than this franchise tag. They're going to continue to try to hash out a long-term deal because that would be the perfect scenario to get Geno Smith on a more cap-friendly multi-year deal where he's getting paid the money he deserves. And you can potentially still draft a quarterback early with this rare number five overall pick, something you have not had in your first 13 years as general manager. So there's a lot of moving parts here. But you know John Schneider and Pete Carroll, this is not just fully smoke screening just to get a trade down. They are strongly looking at these quarterbacks, and what happened yesterday only makes this group more intriguing. And if there's a player in this group like an Anthony Richardson that John Schneider falls in love with, you take that player at number five. So I think it could potentially shift their plans. If they weren't loving one of these quarterbacks, then they might hop right on the franchise tag train with Geno Smith and find a way to make it work. But I don't know necessarily that that is the direction they're going to be going now. And based on what our listeners had to say today, it doesn't seem like the listening uh, public Seahawk fans feel that way either. 71.7% going against the franchise tag out of 300 votes that we had in an hour-long poll this morning. Again, a $32.4 million cap hit if you do that. If you are able to sign a long-term deal with Geno Smith, you can massage that salary cap hit over two, three, four years, depending how long the deal is, and you have a much lower cap hit, at least for this upcoming season, it would give the Seahawks the flexibility to continue building their roster around Geno Smith. And if they draft a young quarterback, be able to get more talented other position groups. $32.4 million, though, that really restricts your ability to do that unless you make a bunch of other moves and John Schneider doesn't like kicking money down the road with restructures. There are some extension candidates, but you're going to have to work those out in quick order. So this would be a really tricky thing for them to work out with the franchise tag. Is it doable? Absolutely, if they want to. But you got to wonder if they are considering not going down that path now with the talent that is clearly in this quarterback class. You're always rolling the dice when you're picking a rookie quarterback at the same time. This group looks like it could have some really special players at the quarterback position, and that could make this decision a lot tougher for John Schneider than expected. Speaking of the combine, we're going to get to our winners and losers at the quarterback, receiver, and tight end position on today's bonus episode. Coming up next, we'll start with the quarterbacks and the receivers, the first two groups that went on Saturday. We'll get to those here in a moment. This bonus episode is brought to you away by Built Bar. If you're looking for a delicious treat but don't want all the fat and calories, you got to try a Built Bar. We just got through the holiday season. I don't know my goal is to eat a little bit healthier this year. If you're like me and you want to eat healthier but don't want to compromise taste, then you've got to try a Built Bar. It's actually healthy and tasty. They're so delicious you don't think that they're good for you. Covered in 100% real chocolate with amazing flavors like churro, peanut butter, brownie, and double chocolate. I'm not sure how Built does it, but these bars taste like a candy bar while maintaining amazing macros and being healthy. Only 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, and a whopping 17 grams of protein. And now you don't have to wait around at home for a box. You can head on over to your local Walmart or Sam's Club. That's right. Head to Walmart today, walk to the pharmacy section, and get yourself a four-bar box of cookies and cream, double chocolate, or coconut puffs. And if you're close to a Sam's Club, you can run in and grab a 13-bar box with their hit flavors, such as brownie batter and churro. You can thank me later. 
You're listening to the bonus edition of Locked On Seahawks here. Happy Sunday to all of our listeners. I'm Corbett Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast. The NFL scouting combine finishing up today. Running backs and offensive linemen will be doing the testing. Rob Rang and I will dissect some of the big winners from those position groups on our Monday episode coming up tomorrow. But let's get to the premium positions that tested on Saturday. Quarterback and receiver. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, obviously the big winner in this draft process of the quarterback position was Anthony Richardson with that dynamic, never-before-seen combination of size, speed, strength, you name it. He put it all on display yesterday in the combine, so he was clearly the big winner. I thought Will Levis did some nice things yesterday, too, but... There's another quarterback that I want to talk about to kick off our big winners from yesterday. I'm going to look at receivers and quarterbacks for this segment. And I want to start with Clayton Toon from Houston. And this is a player that is not getting much buzz right now. He is a little publicized four-year starting quarterback. 70 touchdown passes the last two years for the Cougars. He was a senior bowl participant. And this is a guy that has shown some ability to run the ball at the college level, but not a strength for him. I was impressed with the numbers he put up yesterday, though. A respectable mid-four sixes time in the 40. He was second behind Richardson with a 37.5-inch vertical. He had a sub-6.9-second three-cone, and he did pretty well in the short shuttle as well. I don't think has played himself necessarily, but he might be a quarterback that is now behind Hendon Hooker that is in position maybe in the early fourth round to be the next quarterback that is taken off the board, in part because he's obviously got the passing ability. The production was there. He was in a very quarterback-friendly offense in Houston, but still, this kid put up big numbers throwing the football, and he showed that he's got pretty good athletic tools as well. He's not Anthony Richardson. Nobody is Anthony Richardson, but I thought that Clayton Toon had a really good combine and helped his stock through the ball well when they were doing the drills yesterday as well. So a great chance for him to add a little bit of stock going into the draft and maybe be that sixth quarterback that goes off the board behind Hendon Hooker, who I expect is going to go at some point on day two. Might have been a first-rounder without the torn ACL. As far as the receiver position, two players jumped out to me. Let's start with Bryce Ford Wheaton. Maybe the biggest surprise in the receiver group when you consider the numbers that he put up at West Virginia, he never had more than 675 receiving yards in a season. And I will say this first and foremost, West Virginia, for as much talent as they've had come out of that school on offense, throwing the football in the last 15, 20 years, they've been down the last couple of years. They've had very inconsistent quarterback play. The offense has been hit and miss. They haven't won near as many games. They just have not been successful the last couple of years. So I think a player like Ford Wheaton, you look at the numbers, he has clearly been impacted negatively by the quarterback play, the offense that they're playing in. And this is a guy that's got a rare mix of tools. Six foot four, 211 pounds. He ran a sub 4440 yard dash. 40-plus inch vertical, and a sub-seven-second three-cone drill. That is impressive for a player of that size. He's not built like DK Metcalf necessarily, not quite as big uh, muscle-wise, but he's still 211 pounds at six foot four. This is a big-bodied, super-athletic receiver that in this class, considering it's pretty top-heavy, maybe he sneaks into day two now out of nowhere. I still have him being a fourth to fifth-round pick just because of the production, but again, 
some of that is not on him. This could be a player that ends up being a steal on day two because of the athletic skills and the size that he brings to the table. The last player here that's my big winner is a much bigger name, even though he didn't play much this last season due to a hamstring injury. Jackson Smith and Jigba was a superstar for Ohio State a couple years ago, catching passes from C.J. Stroud. And the narrative with him has been he's slow. and We don't know what his 40 speed is going to look like. He did not run the 40-yard dash yesterday. So you could say, well, that's that's difficult to evaluate him with. But he has played a lot of snaps in the slot. And I'm more interested as an evaluator looking at the change of direction drills. A 6.57-second three cone that is off the charts good in change of direction and smith and jigba did that yesterday that's the 97th percentile among draft prospects and he was even better in the short shuttle 3.97 seconds that's 99th percentile very few players have touched that mark and so we're not just talking about great change of direction testing times these are historically good testing times so any team that's concerned about the athleticism for one thing he looked healthy coming back from that hamstring injury that cost him most of this last season. And you got to see dynamic ability to change direction, a dynamic lateral movement. And out of the slot, that is more important than top speed. And I anticipate if he runs at Ohio State's Pro Day that this is a guy that might surprise people with his 40 time too. I don't think he's going to be a 4-2 or 4-3 burner, but he could run in the 4-4s. And you add in the quickness testing, how he did agility-wise yesterday. I think he has solidified his standing as one of the top receivers in the draft. And I would be surprised at this point with how he looked in the receiving drills too. I'd be surprised if he is not in the top 25 picks once we get to the draft in April. As far as losers, this is tough to evaluate with the receiver and quarterback group, especially the quarterback group, because there's only so much you can take with the throwing drills and things of that nature. There was one player, though, that I was disappointed by the testing numbers in because I thought he might be the guy that was quarterback number six in this class. Maybe he still is. But Dorian Thompson Robinson from UCLA, he did not have the numbers that I thought he was going to put up considering his rushing stats at UCLA. I thought he'd be one of the better testers in this class. That was not the case, though. His 40 time wasn't bad. Four, five, six is still very respectable for a quarterback. Not a lot of QBs run that fast, but only a 32 and a half inch vertical. And this is what concerns me. Tanner McKee from Stanford is 6'6", over 230 pounds. You watch film. The last thing that you're going to call him is mobile. He is not a mobile quarterback that's going to be scrambling, running around. Tanner McKee had a better three-cone and short shuttle time in the combine, though, than Dorian Thompson Robinson did. That stunned me. I did not expect McKee to have better change of direction uh, numbers than Dorian Thompson Robinson. I think that is a big red flag there. And Again, I don't try to put too much stock in the combine, and I love what I see on film athletic wise from this quarterback but unfortunately it didn't match up with what we saw in the combine yesterday so he might be a guy that actually hurt his stock significantly yesterday because he didn't test near as well athletically and that's gonna be a calling card for him in the league I mean this is a quarterback that is a dual threat guy that's had some issues with interceptions you want to sell yourself to teams you have to show what kind of an athlete you are I did not think that we saw that in Indianapolis yesterday as far as the receivers go Kayshawn Butte from LSU, former top recruit. He's 5'11", 195 pounds, so he's not a huge receiver. Kind of short, a little bit stockier. Did run a 4.5 on his first 40. I don't know what happened on his second 40. He was in the 4.7s. I had never seen that happen before, but the 4.5 time is respectable. That's fine. 
The rest of his testing, though, was yuck. 29-inch vertical, that was dead last among receivers. He had a 9-foot, 10-inch broad jump that was second to last, and he didn't test well in the change of direction drills either. He was near the bottom on almost every single one of those drills. And then you add in that ugly second 40 that he ran. Yeah, he ran a 4-5. That's all that matters here in the scheme of things. But he looks to me like he is squarely on the bubble to get picked on day three. And with testing numbers like that, and quite frankly, his numbers have not matched the talent in college. This might be a player that is on the preface of potentially falling to the back part of day three, maybe even being in the undrafted ranks. That's how poor of a day he had in terms of athletic testing, and he really needed that boost. And Jordan Addison is my other player here on three down. And he would be the one caveat here that I don't think he's necessarily played himself out of the first round because you watch the tape. He's just such a good route runner. He's a great football player. The testing was not quite as good as I thought it was going to be. The four, five speed four, four, nine is exactly what they clocked him at. That is fine. That is what I expected to see. He is not a burner necessarily, but that's still a very solid time but a 34-inch vertical was near the bottom for receivers. 10-foot, 2-inch broad jump was near the bottom as well. We didn't get to see the agility testing, and I think that's probably where he would have thrived, but we don't know at this point. I just don't know that the juice is necessarily there with him, but he's such a great route runner that he compensates for the fact that he might not be the most athletically gifted receiver in this class. I still think he's got a very good chance to go in round one because he's an outstanding football player, but didn't think the testing was quite as good as I expected it was going to be. Now let's shift our focus now to the other group that tested on Saturday. And the reason I'm giving an entire segment to this group, you look at the strengths in this draft class. You could maybe include quarterback with how top heavy it is. Four guys in the top 10, that's got to be considered a strength. Edge rushers, this is as deep of an edge rushing class as I have seen in my 10 plus years covering the draft. Might not have the superstars in this group, but there's a ton of really talented players. The corner group, as I talked about on an earlier episode this week, is deep, talented, uber-athletic. A lot of big guys that can move, run fast, quick. Those are positions of strength. I think tight end has got to be thrown into that mix as well. This is one of the better tight end classes that I have seen. And from a Seahawks perspective, we've talked about this some on this podcast You've got two players that are going to be free agents in 2024 and Noah Fan and Colby Parkinson. Will Disley's coming off another injury, and he's going to be heading toward the tail end of the three-year contract that he signed last offseason. So from a long-term perspective, tight end is a position the Seahawks should absolutely be looking to add a premium talent, especially with how deep this class is. We got to see that on display, the combine, at least in terms of athleticism. There's some really good tight ends in this group. As far as my big winners, we got to start with Sam Laporta. And this is starting to turn into the Locked On Iowa podcast part-time. This is the third Iowa player, actually the fourth one that I've had in my winners. I think you could have a top five draft class if you land a bunch of Iowa players. They have been really impressive in this combine process, and you watch the film, they're just really good football players. There's a reason that I was consistently near the top of the Big Ten. They draft or they recruit and they develop players as well as any program in the country. And Laporta ran a 4.5940 at over 250 pounds, was, I believe, second among the tight ends in that particular drill. And then you look at the rest of his numbers at the tight end spot. 
He also had a 6.913 cone. That is elite time for a tight end. 35-inch vertical wasn't at the top, but it was one of the top performances. So you've got the explosiveness, speed, and quickness from him. And he's a guy that has some good numbers, almost 700 receiving yards each of the last two seasons, and he's a good blocker, which Iowa tight ends most of the time they tend to be that way. Noah Fant was the exception coming out of Iowa. This team has, this program has kicked out a lot of really good tight ends. Laporta looks to me like he could be the next one and potentially a player that goes on day two that would interest the Seahawks because of his versatile skill set, his ability to move around the formation. My second big winner, and he's a big dude, Darnell Washington, six foot six, massive human being. Yes, his vertical was dead last among tight ends, but you know what? He's six foot six. I don't care if he can't jump through the building. You look at the rest of his numbers. He ran a four six four forty, and he had a four point zero eight second short shuttle. That is elite for a tight end, and especially for a player of his size, showing off that change of direction skills. And then we get to see the one handed catch that he made along the sideline, the body control. Maybe he didn't get that second foot down in bounds. Might not have been a catch in an NFL game, but it was still a really impressive catch during the drill work. I thought he made as much money as any tight end yesterday. He's already been a borderline first-round pick because of his size coming from an elite program like Georgia. He's got a very good chance to sneak into the first round with those athletic gifts, that size, the blocking ability, you name it. Might have the highest ceiling of any tight end in this draft class. And my last big winner is a player that a lot of people not, might not know much about, and that's Zach Kuntz from Old Dominion. He started his college career at Penn State, couldn't find his way on the field very often, and ended up transferring to Old Dominion. The production hasn't been there. He did have 692 receiving yards in 2021, five touchdowns that year. His numbers this year were down, missed some games with injuries, but he is six foot eight and super athletic. Ran a four five five forty, a sub six nine second. A three cone had a really good short shuttle time as well. Posted excellent broad jump and vertical jumps numbers. He was the most complete athlete of this tight end group. And you see the numbers he put up at Old Dominion two years ago. That gives you an idea that maybe just maybe this could be a player that has a lot of upside to be a better NFL player than college player with his size, his athleticism. He is a ball of clay, and there's going to be a lot of teams out there that are interested. Seattle drafted Kobe Parkinson at six foot seven a few years ago. This might be that kind of move tight end that they think they can develop into a blocker that also has great athleticism that could maybe replace Parkinson a couple of years from now. So I think that Koontz is a player that helped himself out a lot. He's still probably a fifth or sixth round pick because of the lack of production, but those athletic testing numbers are no joke, and that gives him a chance to get drafted much earlier than anticipated before going into this combine process. As far as losers, I'll just be up front. It was tough to find losers. There were a few guys at this group that maybe didn't test as well as anticipated. And I'm going to start off with one that just didn't quite reach the heights I expected with his vertical and broad jump. Michael Mayer, the tight end for Notre Dame, I still think is the consensus number one tight end in this group. In terms of pure football talent, he's the best blocking tight end in this group. Put up really good receiving numbers at Notre Dame too. He plays faster and quicker in pads than what he's going to test. 4-7, 40 time is respectable for him. I actually thought he might run in the mid 4-7s or even low 4-8s based on what I saw on tape. He's not a burner, but he moves better than you anticipate on the field. His vertical jump, though, that was where I thought he fell a little bit short. 32 and a half 
inch vertical, nine foot, 10 inch broad jump. Those were both near the bottom for tight ends. The 40 time was near the bottom as well. So you just don't see the natural athlete. And I didn't expect that he was going to blow up at the combine, but I was hoping there would maybe be a little bit better numbers. I still think he's got a really good chance to be a first rounder though, because he is an excellent football player and outstanding blocker. There are things that aren't going to necessarily show up in athletic testing that he does on the football field that justify him being the number one tight end in this draft class. As far as my second loser from yesterday's event, Payne Durham was maybe my biggest disappointment because I loved what I saw from the Purdue tight end at the senior bowl. He caught a near touchdown in the game down at the one-yard line, and you could see the ability to contort his body in midair, high point the football. There's a lot to like about him, but 4-8-7, 40-yard dash, that's slower than you're going to see some of the offensive linemen today run their 40s in. That was really disappointing. He didn't do great in the other drills that he participated in either. 35-inch vertical is not bad, but it was near the ball. That 40 out expected that he was going to run a lot faster than that. That was a disappointing time, and that might push him into the middle of day three. He's a really good receiving tight end that showed more blocking ability in the senior bowl than I anticipated, but – that 40 times can be really difficult to overcome. There's going to be a lot of teams that are like, I don't know if he's got the athleticism to be able to get open in the NFL, even though you see it on film. 487, that is a concerning time. And my last player on three down, Brenton Strange is one of my sleepers in this draft, watching Penn State games the last couple of years. Not a guy that's put up big numbers necessarily, but had five receiving touchdowns this past season. I thought he would run a little faster. He ran the same 40 ton as Michael Mayer at 4.7. He was dead last in the short shuttle near the bottom in the three cone. That's really what surprised me. He had decent jumping numbers, so there's some explosiveness there. But I thought we would see better three cone and short shuttle numbers from him. With him being a 250-plus uh, pound tight end, he has that ability to move around. That quickness is more evident on film than what we saw in his testing on Saturday. So he's a player that I felt like had a real opportunity to increase his stock in a deep tight end class, and he just didn't take advantage of it with his 40 and his change of direction drills not being as quick or as fast as what I thought they would be at the Combine. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. Make sure to check out Locked on Seahawks. We're on Apple Podcasts and all major podcast platforms and also streaming video form five days a week on YouTube. Coming up tomorrow, it's going to be a mock draft. Monday, we will be looking at the big winners and losers at running back and offensive line, plus taking a gander at some of the latest mock drafts coming out of the Combine in Indianapolis. Should be a jam-packed episode, and we hope you'll be joining us. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Go Hawks.